Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www. This is Marissa and Peter. Coming up on the show is a special broadcast dedicated to International Women's Day that happened on the 8th of March 2018. And we have prepared um, a wonderful show. Um, Peter has organised a, a recording of Ramona Africa from Move, and the recording will be speaking about her life and a lot of the persecution that MOVE has experienced. And then following that, there will be a recording about Marilyn Buck and about her and her poetry. And I believe there'll be some poetry read out um, that she has written. Marilyn Buck defied categorisation. In fact, she worked hard at that, challenging the assumptions and easy answers that might have defined her life, rejecting, rejecting sexism, white supremacy and racism, she broke through boundaries both international and external and in so doing left a rich legacy. So enjoy the show. Okay, Marilyn Buck passed away in 2010 but her legacy still lives on. ...of Ramona Africa. Uh, you might remember Ramona, she's been on our show once before. Uh, one of my favourite shows, Ramona Africa is the Minister of Communications for the group MOVE. And you might recall that way back in 1979, they had a, their first home was attacked by the police. There was a, a shootout. And then in 1985, the police again attacked them. 
and burned down a whole row of 60 homes in Philadelphia. Uh, they dropped a, a firebomb on top of this row of houses. And Ramon Africa uh, is a, a real hero and a real um, someone to be looked up to in this movement. This is a woman that was shot at. She, they, they tried to burn her alive, and then they threw her in prison for 15 years. And like we were just saying off the air, she's still fighting. She's still fighting for you. She's fighting for me, and she's fighting for her friends that are still in prison tonight. So, Ramona, are you there? I'm here on the movement. Thanks for having me. God bless you. Ramona, tell us about yourself. Who is Ramona Africa? And tell us about this whole story about how you and your family were attacked. Okay. Uh, Ramona Africa was a very normal, everyday young black woman that had aspirations, one of being a lawyer. I graduated from Temple University. Um, I was on my way to law school when I decided that um, that might not be for me. I met MOVE and uh, was very, very impressed with not only the information that MOVE put out, but also the example, uncompromising, righteous example that they set. And it just pulled me pulled me right in because I could not dispute what they were saying. It was obviously the truth, and I ended up deciding that I would rather be a revolutionary. I wanted to be part of the MOVE organization as opposed to being uh, a judge, a lawyer, a prosecuting attorney. I wanted to be like MOVE, and that's who I am today. And, and what was MOVE doing exactly? I know you guys were living communally and you were, like, activists. And, and, uh, and, uh... Right. Well, and one thing I always uh, like to point out to people, because it, it amazes me to this day, when the MOVE organization emerged in Philadelphia, the lifestyle that John Africa taught MOVE uh, encouraged us to live was criticized and ostracized by everybody. From the way we wear our hair, we would walk down the street, people would holler out, comb your hair, take a bath, because they associated locks, uncombed hair, with being dirty, which is not true. Um, we composted what they call composting today. We broke up cement around our house, particularly in our backyard, and we would nurture the dirt. We would turn it over. We would feed the earth um, eggshells and uh, potato peelings and fruit seeds, etc. And people went crazy and said, you know, oh, my God, they're throwing garbage in the backyard. They're nasty. They put a cute little word called composting on it today, and it's the way to go. It's being green. With our hair, John Africa told us back then in the early 70s, he said that at some point a whole lot of people, celebrated people, professional people, were going to be wearing their hair in locks. We couldn't see it back then in the early 70s, but what do you see now? Actors, actresses, athletes, all kinds of celebrated people, professionals, you know, wear their hair in locks now. It's, it's acceptable now. 
um, we homeschool our children. People went crazy. Oh, your kids are going to be dumb. They're not going to be able to get a job. you got to send your kids to school and blah, blah, blah. Well, now homeschooling is very much acceptable, you know. Excuse me, a whole lot of people homeschool their children now. Well, Ramona, uh, Ramona, Ramona, were you wearing yoga pants and drinking Starbucks coffee, too? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not really what we're into, but um, the point is just that everything that MOVE was criticized for, yeah. particularly raw food, eating raw food, people say, All right, you got to make yourself sick, you got to make your children sick, you got to cook food for them, and blah, blah, blah. Now you have raw food restaurants from the West Coast all the way over here to the East Coast. It's the acceptable thing, nutritionists, you know, uh, uh, rally the call for raw food, how good it is for you. They call garlic, raw garlic, a wonder food. When move ate raw garlic, and we still do, um, people say we stink. Who's eating garlic? Ew, that stinks. You know? So all I'm saying is that everything that John Africa coordinated and moved and that we were criticized and ostracized for has now become accepted by the very system that criticized us and wanted to kill us for our way of living. Yeah, now it's trendy, it's chic, you know? Yeah. So now yeah. They, they actually, and, and pretty much these are the reasons why they came and attacked your first home. There was a, crazy things like a, no, no curtains on the, on the windows, and, uh, and they, they actually came and, and attacked you. Right, no gas and electric. Meanwhile, almost every day in some part of this country, you hear on the news about people being burned to death or almost being burned to death, their whole family, because of electrical fires, gas fires, you know. Mm. Move was just setting the example that you can live without those things. We're not demanding that people do, but don't act like we're crazy because we're showing you that you can, in fact, live without it, and that the only reason why uh, system officials push it is because of money. Yeah. And now you and have they, people, people yeah. live off the grid. You know, the trendy phrase is living off the grid. You know, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, so then uh, so describe what happened that day in 1979 when they came and attacked. Um, it was 1978, August 8th, and uh, a judge had said that uh, our home wasn't safe, that we had uh, housing code violations, that he wanted us out by August 1st. Well, some move people went on to other activities, coordinated activities, but other move people stayed at our home at move headquarters. So this judge issued warrants for Everybody, even people that he knew were not in our home, not in move headquarters at the time. So in the wee hours of the morning on August 8th of 1978, hundreds of cops came out to our home, surrounded our home in mass, and 
they and firefighters, I must say, they uh, in both attacks on moves, firefighters were used. Their deluge hoses were used to attack us. That was the first mode of attack. Uh, deluge hoses that pumped out at least 10,000 pounds of water pressure per minute were aimed at us, you know, at our family, at our home. Uh, flooding our basement, which is where most people were, flooding it with water, almost six feet of water, and um, move women, a lot of move women at the time were short, like me, I'm like 4'11 and a half, and other move women were about that height, five feet, some were, you know, taller, five, six, but it was almost six feet of water pumped into our basement, and move women particularly short move women, were standing on tables, you know, holding their babies to keep from drowning and to keep their babies from drowning. Um, after that, they pumped tear gas into the basement, tons of tear gas, and they couldn't even see in the basement after they pumped so much tear gas in there. And cops said that they could not see but they heard babies crying in certain areas, and they emptied their guns, reloaded, and emptied them again in corners where they heard babies crying. Um, then, uh, after they did all of that, and the confrontation was pretty much over after hours, this is in 78, most people came out. And my brother Delbert is famous for uh, being beat almost to death by cops as he came out unarmed, naked to the waist. He didn't have a shirt on. He had pants on. Mm -hmm. And his hands up. They could see he was not armed, was not resisting. But four cops attacked him with their steel helmets, right, steel riot helmets, kicked him with steel-toed boots, and uh, smashed him repeatedly with rifle butts, with the butt of their rifle. Del survived that. Delbert survived that. And um, is stronger, you know, today than ever, healthy. But several of the cops that beat him one committed suicide after May of 85. He was involved in that attack on us to commit suicide, blew his brains out. Another cop, uh, he was married to a woman cop, and it came out that he would beat her, beat up her mother, and she went to her uh, superiors, her supervisors, complaining about it and asking for help, and they wouldn't do anything. They just told her, you know, basically suck it up. We can't have that kind of controversy now, you know, with this move thing going on. And I guess she just couldn't take it anymore, and he came after her one time, and she ended up using her service revolver and shooting him. He didn't die. He laid a vegetable for about a year before he then died. And um, 
they charged her. They charged her, even though he had been abusing her. Wasn't there an incident, too, where shortly after this, one of the MOVE members was killed, shot dead in an alley? I think he was handcuffed as well. Was what? No, no, yeah, wasn't there a member that was shot dead in an alley or something like that a couple of days after one of these incidents, either this one or the fire on Osage Avenue? Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It wasn't a MOVE person. It was um, a person, like a witness. Uh, in Mumia Abu-Jamal's case. Oh, okay. Yeah, and um, he was found dead in an alleyway uh, a day or two after May 13th of 85, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, I was mm -hmm. up on that. So now, so there was a trial in the first attack in 1978. There was a trial, and some of your friends have been in prison for 33 years? 38 years this year. 38 years. Yeah. They were, um, first of all, they represented themselves. Move represents ourselves in, you know, for a court. And chose to have a bench trial, meaning a trial by the judge alone, not a jury. And um, people thought that was, you know, uh, not the way to go. But Move pointed out, you got 2.5 million at least prisoners in jail in this country, and what, 99% of them had lawyers? Yeah, right. So that's not, you know, any kind of good statistics in favor of lawyers. Anyway, Move uh, chose a bench trial, represented ourselves uh, for all of a few weeks, because move people were doing such a phenomenal job of exposing the lies, the conspiracy against move, uh, that the judge ended up removing move people from the courtroom. And the, the backup attorneys, standby attorneys, they call them, uh, went forward against Move's wishes and specific instructions, and they went ahead and represented Move. You know, Move told them, you cannot represent us. Do not put on any kind of evidence, any witnesses. We don't want you doing anything. They did it anyway and got Move convicted and sentenced each of the Move sentenced to 30 to 100 years. And after the judge had convicted all nine of my sisters and brothers and sentenced them to that outrageous sentence of 30 to 100 years, the judge, Judge Edwin Malman, went on a radio talk show here in Philadelphia, and Mumia Abu-Jamal heard him, so he called in. And he asked the judge one question. Who killed Officer James Ramp in August of 78. And the judge replied, and I quote him, he said, I haven't the faintest idea. Now, this is the man that just convicted nine people and sentenced nine people to 30 to 100 years. And just to clarify things here, um, whether you're a jury, you know, whether you're uh, a member of a jury, or whether you're the judge ruling without a jury. In order to convict someone, 
you are supposed to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt of their guilt, obviously saying you haven't the faintest idea is definitely indicating that you're not convinced, that you don't have a clue. But this judge convicted our family, nevertheless, and sentenced them. Now, how do you get past that? I mean, it is clear that those running the system, particularly uh, those involved in the legal system, are just determined, you know, to get rid of move. And let me make it clear, too. Their intent when they came out there on August 8th of 78, and especially when they came out there in May of 85, was not to arrest. They weren't looking to arrest anybody. Their intent was to kill, was to kill every living being in our house, man, woman, child, even our, our animals, our dogs and cats, you know, and people need to really understand that. It, it can't get any clearer than May of 85 where they drop a bomb. I mean, eh, what were we accused of? Were we accused of murder, rape, robbery, uh, child molestation, uh, drug trafficking? We weren't accused of anything like that. The most they could do and try to pump up was they said they had complaints from our neighbors that we weren't good neighbors. Is that cause to drop a bomb and burn babies as well as adults alive? I, I, you know? I hear you, Ramona. It is so outrageous, and it, what's even more outrageous is that people in this country do not, we do not have, that, that day should be like a national day of mourning in this country. That 60 homes are burned, burned down to the ground. People's lives turned upside down. How many members of the move were killed that day? 13? 11. 11. Women, yeah, five children, children and six adults. Five children. Everyone talks, everyone knows about Waco, you know, and all these other things. But this is a, a, a national disgrace that, that should be a day of mourning in this country. And someday I hope it will be. I, I, I believe it will be someday. Uh, one, one thing that um, should be pointed out to people as well, when it came to uh, Randy Weaver right. and Ruby Ridge, when it came to David Koresh and, and Waco, they had made movies about that. I mean, TV movies, feature films. They won't touch move. They won't touch move. And that should tell people something. I mean, if they are um, okay with making a movie about Ruby Ridge and Waco, why do they stop short with Move? Well, what is it also about Move that they just don't want to touch? I'll tell you what it is. They don't want to open that can of worms, as they say, that Pandora's box, because all that could possibly happen is that they would expose themselves because they can't tell the truth. They can't. 
Well, also, too, with, with Waco and Ruby Ridge, they filed lawsuits. They got settlements. They got cash. Did any of these victims in these 60 homes and, and all these, did, did anybody get any kind of reparations? Well, when I filed the lawsuit, and this is <laughs> incredible, too, um, they, the jury found only the police commissioner, the fire commissioner, and the city of Philadelphia. All of the other defendants that I had in my lawsuit, they dismissed them with immunity, giving them immunity. And um, in the end, only those three went to trial, you know. And uh, the jury, which was a federal jury, so it wasn't just Philadelphians, it was the five counties, Philadelphia and the other four surrounding counties. And to my bit of surprise, they found the, the police commissioner, the fire commissioner, and the city of Philadelphia liable. Now, in terms of any kind of compensation, they ordered the city of Philadelphia to pay me $500,000. Now, that may seem like a lot, but it's not. It absolutely is not, particularly when you realize that uh, a, a woman that spilled hot coffee on her or got hot coffee spilled on her at McDonald's got uh, over a million dollars, you know. Right, right. I lost my family. Right. I was almost burned alive, you know. But they ordered the police commissioner and the fire commissioner to pay me each one dollar every week for 11 years. One dollar. Then, after the jury's verdict and what they ordered in terms of compensation, the judge turned around and reversed it and gave the police commissioner and the fire commissioner uh, immunity, and they didn't have to even pay the dollar a week, either one. And, and also, too, they, you got 15 years in prison. Seven. Seven years in prison. 16 so, months to seven years, and when my minimum came up, uh, 16 months, I saw the parole board, and what they told me, now I was convicted of riot. Now, how they figured that, I don't know. But anyway, I was convicted of riot, and the parole board did not ask me one single thing about riot. Would I agree not to riot again? Would I agree not to be involved in any demonstrations or whatever? Never asked me anything like that. You know what they asked me? Yeah. They told me that... Um, the only way they would parole me was if I agreed to sever all contact, all ties with MOVE. Have absolutely no contact with MOVE. Then they would parole me. I would not agree to such a thing, neither would any of my sisters and brothers who came up for parole and had that same uh quote, special condition put to them. None of us accepted that. We all did our maximum time 
we maxed out. And then because of our strong stand and pressure from people around the world, uh, when two of my family members, Carlos and Consuela, came up for parole again, uh, they ended up paroling them without that stipulation. But the rest of my family members, the Move 9, uh, are still in prison, became eligible for parole in 2008, and have seen the parole board seven to eight times since then, and continue to get denied parole because, quote, this is from their parole sheet, uh, they don't accept responsibility for their offenses. Now, what, you're just going to make somebody say that they did something that they didn't do? Move is not going to do that. Furthermore, Ed, guilt or innocence is not even the issue when it comes to parole. You've already been convicted. You know, they already feel like you're guilty or else you wouldn't be in prison coming up for parole. Also, what about the Fifth Amendment? The Fifth Amendment is supposed to protect people against uh, self-incrimination. Now, how are they going to demand that my family incriminate themselves, say that they're guilty of something they didn't do? Ramon, Isn't that a violation of the Fifth Amendment? Let me interrupt you for one second. I just want to recap. Here we have Ramona Africa. First, her home and her friends and her family, they were attacked in 1978. They were shot at. They had to hold their babies over their head in a basement while they were being flooded alive. Tear gas. Then, uh, years later, 1985, again they were attacked by Philadelphia police, shot at, burned, tried to be burned alive when she was trying to escape from that house with a little boy they were shooting at her, trying to kill her. Then they put her in prison for seven years. Now, Ramona, we only got a four minutes left. Now, tell me okay. what is going on. You got three friends right now that are up for parole in May, right? Right. My three sisters. One of my sisters, Merle, died in prison. Oh my God. Um, in '98. Yeah, but my three sisters come up for parole in May. My brother Eddie just saw the parole board last Thursday, a week ago today. Um, we are really pushing hard putting as much pressure as we can on the parole board um, to, to push for the release of my family members. Um, my sister's people should know didn't even have weapons charges. The cops didn't even lie on them like they did my brothers. They admitted that all they saw our sisters doing was holding babies, holding babies. They never have weapons charges on them. Um, so we're pushing really hard. There is uh, a petition on our website, on the move, O-N-A-M-O-V-E dot com, on the move dot com, where people can sign the petition calling for the release of our innocent family members. People can write the parole board, the Pennsylvania parole board, um, Sometimes people think that doesn't help, but it does. It does. If they start hearing from people, um, it, it puts some pressure on them. The parole board's address is 1101 South Front Street, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17104. 
the chairman of the parole board is Michael Green, and the phone number, if people want to call, is 717-787-5699. And people may hear something they have a question about or just may want to contact us. That's fine. We don't hide behind anonymity. We're easy to contact. People can call us at 215-386-1165. They can email me at onamove, O-N-A-M-O-V-E, L-L-J-A for Long Live John Africa at gmail.com. And people can go to our website. And all of these phone numbers, all of these links, uh, these addresses will all be on the Opperman Report blog, and they'll be in the YouTube uh, comments and the Spreaker comments and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Ramona Africa, thank you so much. Like I said, a true, uh, a true hero, okay? And um, we can't thank you enough, Ramona, for uh, first struggling for us and, and, and not giving up, you know, and having this strength. Well, I thank you because people hear about move from everybody and I thank you for giving people the opportunity to hear about MOVE from MOVE. And don't forget, any time you have something come up, I want you to email me right away and let me know. We'll put you right on the air. Okay. Ramon, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that. That nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. When I was 19 years old, I was living in Chicago and I was co-editing New Left Notes out of the National Students for Democratic Society office. And we had heard about this beautiful wall called the Freedom Wall on Chicago's south side, painted by black people representing the black struggle. So we decided it would be really nice to have this picture in the newspaper. So I and this other young woman, young white woman, we went down to the south side of Chicago. You know, and we got out of the car and I took the pictures. And this young black woman came up to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm taking a picture. I'm from SDS. You know, she says, who the hell is SDS? I don't care. Who, what are you doing in our community? Who gives you the right to come rip off our art? And we got into a small back and forth because I was, I was shocked, sort of, you know, I was, it was like, I, I couldn't comprehend it at that moment. And it was resolved, I gave the film back to her, and I went back, and it took me a couple, it took me maybe a year to really understand about that people have a right to their culture, they have a right to, to invite you into their house. 
you know, and that I, even though I was a white radical, that I thought that I, you know, because I was a radical, that they gave me a passport to go anywhere without permission, was a wrong thing. And it taught me a really, it taught me a lesson about how do you respect other people. And and, I, and I'm, I'm really happy. I'm fortunate that, that that happened to me at that point because I think that in the long run, though I didn't understand it the next day, that it enabled me from out of my own personal experience to, under, to, to understand what does it mean, self-determination, people's right to their own culture and a right to control their own destiny. If you believe in human rights, then you have to believe, then I believe in the liberation of all peoples and people's right to their own nations, the right to their culture, to their land, to their resources. I do not believe that women can be liberated unless, they, unless societies are liberated, until there are different social structures, until the means of, the, of production are controlled by the people who do the producing. And that means women. That means men, and that means whole nations. And therefore, I feel as a woman, my liberation is tied to the liberation of, of all the women in the world and all oppressed people and exploited peoples in the world. I think revolution and freedom is about li giving life to our creativity and our spirit as human beings, irregardless of race or nationality. And I don't think that it can't, it cannot grow when one is in an oppressor situation or an oppressed situation. Um, but on the other hand, as a revolutionary, I want to be part of a process which creates the basis for all people to live well. I don't think revolution is about trying to make everyone equally poor. I think it's about making everyone able to, to have the kind of comforts of society, to be able to be fulfilled in their work and to be able to see the, the fruits of their labor. Well, I became, I came of age in a period of revolution when armed struggle was being successfully employed by the Vietnamese, that revolution was in Latin America, Che Guevara was struggling in Bolivia along with, with many other people whose names we know and we don't know, men and women. And I always, one of the things that I learned from that was that I really believed in the, the question of two, three, many Vietnam. And the black liberation struggle was really beginning to flower in this country, being able to assert itself. The question of not only self-defense, but being able to fight back and being able to take on the state in certain kinds of way. From a, a not organized, from a mass not organized level of insurrections in, in Detroit, in Watts, in Chicago, in Newark, to to more organized forms of struggle. And one of the things that 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 really impressed me was when I met young men and women from the Black Panther Party, and the kind of of being in this organization and fighting for the liberation of their people, and not having the fear having, the, having the, the moral courage, the physical courage, and the, the knowledge of that this was the right and just way to go forward impressed me a lot. And I believed that, that, that if I supported this process, that I had to be willing to be able to engage in that. 
since the early 70s, I have been a target of COINTELPRO, though I can't show you any documents because I can't get any papers. But I think that the U.S. government, that, number one, they fear revolution, they fear a change in the status, and they fear the liberation of black people, of Puerto Rico, of Native American people. They fear the breakup of the empire. They fear the loss of the wealth and power that, that the ruling class has here. And they fear the people who are committed to doing that. I have a 70-year sentence for um, participating in the liberation of Asada Shakur, support for the black liberation struggle, uh, in solidarity with the, uh, with the black liberation army in various actions. It was called a conspiracy by the government, a criminal conspiracy. And I think because I was a white person who has been committed since 1968, perhaps, until now, and that no matter what they have done to me, the years in prison, the years in isolation, that I have not renounced that. I have never recanted that. Asada represents the strength and the spirit of the liberation of black people's struggle for liberation in this country. And when that spirit, that representation of that spirit is freed, then, then it, there's hope. There's hope for for black people, there's hope for all people who love liberation and who love freedom. When I first went to prison in 1973, there I didn't, I was, for several years, I was with no other women political prisoners. So I sort of had to, it was like feeling my way. What is, what is it to be a woman political prisoner? You know, what is, what is the standard I should meet? So I think one of the most important things of being in prison, a privilege even, was that I met Lolita Lebron, one of the, the nationalist Puerto Rican prisoners. And she is truly an amazing woman, a woman who's been, who was willing to live, to die, to endure what was ever necessary for the independence of her people, of her nation. And I learned an incredible amount about Puerto Rico and about the struggle for independence. And I think that, you know, I really, it's, it's just mostly I feel privileged and honored to have been able to even been in prison with her, to have known her a little bit, and to have shared struggles and conversations and, and time with her. One of my favorite poems is a poem by Mario Benedetti, which is why, it's called, Why Do We Sing? or you ask why we sing. And he says that we sing because it rains in the trenches and we are militants of life and because we cannot or we will not let the song become ashes. And I think that, that if, you de if, if we're committed to struggle, that we're committed to life and we're committed to that never dying. I believe in living. I believe in birth. I believe in the sweat of love and the fire of truth. And I believe that a lost ship steered by tired, seasick sailors can still be guided home to port. We share the poetry of Marilyn Buck. Some people read poetry. Some can't so well. Yes, I say. Oop and I, we smile.
In the eyes of the government, Marilyn Buck is an enemy of the state, despised for her role in freeing black liberation leader Asada Shakur, hated for her willingness to risk her life and freedom for a world imaginable only to a revolutionary or a poet. Marilyn is someone very different, a woman who lives for transformation. Through her political activism and writing, she creates the possibility of a world of social justice and peace. Through her approach to prison, she transforms the repression and censorship of imprisonment, and in the process, has become a poet. In the CD Wild Poppies, the Freedom Archives recorded poets sharing the poetry of Marilyn Buck. The poet contributors include Amiri Baraka, Dennis Brutus, Fanny Howe, Presente, Sonia Sanchez, Kwame Toure, Nellie Wong, Merle Wu, and many others. Framing the Poetry is music contributed by a variety of artists, including India Cook, Fred Ho, and the Brooklyn Saxophone Quartet, and the musicians and activists of Shame the Devil. We open up this podcast with Samsara, an a cappella trio that fuses numerous styles to create music for the next generation of struggle and resistance. Here, Samsara performs Marilyn Buck's Jasper, Texas, which addresses the murder of James Byrd. Their feet dusted red on East Texas roads, shrieks, lights, heavy summer air, white children play, fearless in pine shadowed lanes, till dark fall, we're cold in behind. Sunday sermons spill out windows in sticky heat. Our washed feet found in Oxford's and patent leather swing while ladies in flower print dresses bob hats perched on dishwater curls. In prayer to God, in prayer to God, in prayer to God, some other God than the one down the road in churches where black families pray. of cross burnings Dusty devils of terror behind their 
That was Samsara, performing the poetry of Marilyn Buck. Our next poem, From Wild Poppies, is read by Dennis Brutus. Brutus was imprisoned on Robben Island, South Africa, for his active resistance to the apartheid regime. He has authored many publications, including Letters to Martha and other poems, poems from Algiers and Strains. Brutus reads Marilyn Buck's One Hour Yard poem. I'm glad to read this poem as an expression of solidarity with her in prison as a political prisoner. I was a political prisoner myself in South Africa in opposition to the racism there with people like Nelson Mandela. And of course I've supported political prisoners in other parts of the world. Here's the poem, One Hour Yard Poem. I step from suffocating stillness, from dank cells and dead air out, fleeting green trespasses, forbidding walls teases my senses, taunts prisons sucking yellow mouth. I am a pale shadow genie released from my cell for one hour. I unwind to receive the coquettish day. I dance under the blue-washed sky. High, thick-bodied walls cast aspersions, challenge the sun. Concertina wire grins razor sharp. Birds dance between the teeth. Dandelions dig under, send feathery envoys into the breeze. Defiant flora gains ground, subversive. A lone caterpillar inches across concrete wasteland. Careful, I let it pass. What pleasure watching caterpillar travel forward while I walk in circles an hour in the sun. That was Dennis Brutus. Up next, Flam poet and performance artist Aya De Leon is performed at Lincoln Center and been the recipient of a fellowship from the California Arts Council as well as the Compañeros Award from Underground Railroad. She performs Grito de Vieques on the Wild Poppies disc. My name is Vieques. I'm a Puerto Rican girl. My stepfather is the United States. He comes into my room at night to do his business. My name is Vieques. I used to dream that Spain, my real father, would come back and rescue me, but he's gone for good. I have only the faint and echoing voices of Africana and Taina ancestors telling me that I can survive this. My name is Vieques. When my body started to change, my stepfather dressed me in a clingy, itchy dress. Smile, he told me. Smile, 
at the nice foreign military man and pushed me towards him. The military man was not nice. His skin was pasty, his breath smelled. I couldn't understand his language. He came into my room and did his business. My name is Vieques. Sometimes my stepfather sells me to whole groups. He calls them allied forces. I fought back the best I could with chains and live bodies and fishing boats. It happened anyway. My name is Vieques. I am still fighting back. I am bigger and stronger now. I have put a church, an encampment, a struggle up at my bedroom door. My stepfather can't get in. He has not been able to do his business for months now. Longer than I ever dreamed, my name is Vieques. Without the shock of constant bombardment, the numbness is subsiding. I look at my body and see the devastation. Lagoons like self-esteem have dried up to nothingness. My womb is wilting with radiation from illegally used uranium ammunition. Where my skin was once lush and soft, I am scarred. Old tanks like cigarette burns dot my flesh. Unexploded bombs like memories may detonate in the future when chosen lovers touch me in the wrong spot or without warning. My name is Vieques. The numbness is subsiding. Tender shoots of grass push up towards the sky. A lizard sneaks back to sun itself on a chunk of shrapnel. A butterfly alights on a rusted-out jet. Fish slowly make their way back toward my shores, no longer reverberating with shockwaves of violation. My name is Vieques. This is my body. It may be worth $80 million a year to you, Yankee, but it is priceless. To me, my door is barred. I have burned the clingy, itchy dress. The encampment grows stronger. The fish, the lizards, the grass, the butterflies stand with me. I'll never be the same, but I'll never be yours again to do your dirty business. My name is Vieques, and I will be free. Viva Vieques, libre. Viva Puerto Rico, libre. Sanchez. We close out this edition of the Freedom Archives podcast with Marilyn Buck herself, reading her poem from which this disc is named, Wild Poppies. This call is from a federal prison. I remember red poppies wild behind the schoolhouse. I didn't want to be there, but I loved to watch the poppies. I used to sit in the window of my room sketching charcoal trees. What happened to those magnolias, to that girl? I went off to college, escaped my father's thunderstorms, Berkeley, rebellion, exhilaration. The Vietnam War, black power, Che took me to Chicago, midnight lights under Wacker Drive, uptown, south side, lapped by self-determination for taking freedom wall photos without asking. On to California, driving at 3 o'clock in the morning in the mountains. I got it. What self-determination means? A daunting task for a young white woman. I was humbled. Practice is concrete, harder than crystal dream concept. San Francisco on the front steps at Fulton Street, smoking reefer, drinking bitter dog with black panthers and white hippie radicals, talking about when the revolution comes. The revolution did not come. Fred Bennett was missing. We learned he'd been found, ashes, bones, a wedding ring. But later there was a sawdust freedom smile. Then I was captured, locked into a cell of sewer water, spirit deflated. I survived, carried on, 
glad to be like a weed, a wild red poppy rooted in life.